Welcome to the first episode in the second series of the Therapeutic Parenting Podcast, which is coming to you from COECT, the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma. We provide proven strategies to help people living and working with child trauma, no matter if you're a parent, someone who suffered trauma in your early years, or even if you're a supporting professional. In the second series, we're focusing on tackling specific problem areas like parental isolation, wee and poo problems, a manic desire to eat sugar, and lots more. And as before, we'll be talking to experts who have first-hand knowledge of these challenges that we know you are facing. I'm Serena Gay, your host, and today I'm delighted to be joined again by COECT CEO and founder, Sarah Naish. She has direct experience of therapeutic parenting, having adopted five siblings who suffered profound trauma in their early years before coming to live with her. Sarah is a best-selling author on therapeutic parenting and an internationally recognised expert. Sarah, hello again. It's good to have you back on what's turning out to be a very successful podcast with over 55,000 downloads to date, so we know we're doing something right. Hi, Serena. Yes, I know. It's great, isn't it? Fabulous. And I'm hoping that, well, I understand we've had good feedback as well. So we do know that we're helping people. Yes, we've had a lot of feedback through COECT, from our Facebook sites. Um, Lots of people being able to pick out the episodes they want. And then, of course, they go on to listen to other ones because I think they really like the variety of speakers and the variety of topics. And it's also relevant to their lives. Absolutely. And today we're going to be talking about the isolation that parents can feel when they're looking after profoundly traumatised children, which isn't something that we really um, focused on at all last time. But I know that you can talk about this from personal experience. So would you be good enough to take us through your story here? Yes, of course. Um, Like many people, when I started on my journey of adopting my children, I had previously fostered for a short time and I'd worked as a social worker. So, and I had some really good childcare knowledge from being a nursery nurse. So, so as I say, like a lot of people, I thought that I would be absolutely fine. I'd be able to sort the children out, you know, fairly quickly within six months to a year and that, you know, life would be lovely. And my friends who had children, we'd all be going on play dates together. And what I discovered really quickly was that even within the first three months of my younger three children coming home to me, there was a distance between myself and even the other mums at nursery. So my children were aged between seven months and four years when they came home. And because they all arrived at once, obviously I hadn't built up those relationships Mm -hmm. that you normally build up when you're pregnant and having babies and you know so there was established groups already so that was the first problem the second problem was that my children were very different to the other children in the play group and parents would look on with a bit of horror at some of the behaviors that we had all trauma-based fear-based behaviors obviously my children were very very late in toilet training which is completely normal um But somehow, you know, that felt like that was a reflection on me. So there was a general drawing away. So that was the first thing that I noticed. Um, And even with my established friends who had children of similar ages, 
they just didn't really connect to my children very well. They didn't really understand them. I think they thought like I did that they'd move in and they wouldn't remember anything and everything would be fine. And of course that wasn't the case. So even though I would try to speak to my friends and explain why my children behaved the way they did, they did really often kind of look at me a bit askance and and I knew they were really thinking, well, you know, is it the parenting or surely it can't be this bad? And then, of course, the children's behaviours also push people away. So, for example, when one of my children who was age six started holding my friend's baby a little bit too tightly, that didn't go down very well and they weren't invited back. <laughs> So how did you cope then with this sense of being distanced from your friends and peers? I think that it was very subtle and it takes quite a long time. So uh, I was obviously in a couple relationship and when that failed, I was truly alone. I was a single parent and I think it took me many years to learn to cope, actually. I think that I uh, was isolated on so many levels and it almost felt like I was behind a, a glass wall so people could see what was happening or I thought they could but they couldn't help me and they couldn't connect and I think it gets to a point where not only do you stop trying to connect and you stop trying to explain to people what's going on you don't even want to you you just life gets difficult and you end up coping alone. So I would say, you know, there was no quick fix here. There was no, you know, after a year, me popping out and joining some kind of lovely um, friendship circle. That that didn't happen. So I was still very isolated and became more and more isolated for well over 10 years, um, which just became more and more difficult. And that experience is not dissimilar to many therapeutic parents because, of course, you also have often the drawing away of family as well. What is the outlook ultimately then for parents in this situation? I mean, it must affect their mental health. It does. Um, and it certainly affected my mental health. And I think on some levels it can make you very resilient. There's, there's small comfort, actually, or some comfort in the knowledge that you are on your own and that you've got to get through this. It does make you very resilient. It makes you very resourceful. And you start sort of researching things and reading things and, and checking. And you also get quite feisty. I mean, I would certainly have been considered a, a, a what I call a bad-tempered parent because I became really quite assertive about what my children needed. I think I got to the point where I thought, well, people may not understand or believe me in what I'm saying my children need but I know this is right so I'm going to just be kind of very assertive about getting it well that in itself doesn't make you a lovely warm fluffy person <laughs> for people to connect to so I think over the long term what happened was of course I connected to other people like me I found other therapeutic parents but that wasn't easy and so I guess then that one of the functions of COECT is to help parents in such a situation to meet each other. Yes, that's right. So um, one of the worst times when the children were teenagers, when I felt very alone, 
I remember thinking then, you know, it, it isn't right that, that I feel this way. It isn't right that we've worked so hard as a family to, to heal the children and to get to a good place and to still feel alone. And there must be thousands and thousands of people who are experiencing the same thing. And I tried to join other groups. I did, I did try, yeah. but they, they weren't, uh, they didn't help me. They didn't connect on the same level. It was more about, um, you know, magazines and, uh, but I needed somebody to talk to who understood my experiences, wasn't blaming me as a parent, wasn't judging uh, me for how the children were behaving and, and what was going on in their lives. So really, you know, one of the things that I knew we needed was we needed to find something or create something which helped to connect therapeutic parents. And what you went on to create, and we can talk about that later, but mm. it must have been a real help during what one can only assume was a sort of a nightmare scenario, really, for parents in the last year during the pandemic and the lockdowns, because that isolated them even more. Yes, we've certainly had quite a lot of um, input and requests for help from adopters and foster parents and parents of children with additional needs especially single parents in lockdown and we've also seen some uh, real s tragedies where you know we've had parents contacting us saying I can't look after this child anymore you know they're driving me mad and and that kind of thing and obviously we do get in there and help we've got a really big network that helps but I think the problem is is that while some parents manage really well in lockdown because they didn't have the added stresses of school so the children were less triggered and they were a lot calmer so so some oh, really? some pa yeah some parents yeah. had really positive experiences um other parents found the intensity of that every day you know try pressure on them to try to get their children to engage in school which is pretty difficult to be honest for from a therapeutic parenting perspective um and and all of that you know and and you're right we're all isolated anyway well a lot of people join together in zoom calls well you try joining in on a zoom call and your traumatized child not joining in in the background and doing something to ensure that you leave that call to to give you them your attention oh impossible impossible mm. yeah no i can so see that and but but this this sense of isolation then, so whether or not it's exacerbated by a lockdown scenario, it must lead to this um, compassion fatigue that you've talked about so often. How, mm. how, how do you, as a parent, recognise that you've got it? What is it? One of the main ways that you recognise that you have compassion fatigue is you feel really just disconnected from the child you start feeling like you don't like them you might feel compelled to leave the room when they come in um, and they it can just be a trigger for you just knowing that the child is approaching and what's happened there is that the child's behavior has had such an impact on you that you can't get out of it now the difficulty is that when you're isolated you are trapped with those feelings because we know that one of the best ways of exiting compassion fatigue and re-establishing that connection to the child is having somebody you can talk to who's on the same wavelength, who understands what you're going to. Well, if you can't talk to anyone, it's almost impossible to exit compassion fatigue. No amount of bubble baths and long walks will help you to exit compassion fatigue if you can't just talk through with someone who's on the same page what your experiences are. 
So that that's why, um, you know, and our research with compassion fatigue showed that that was a really important part of it. And also, of course, that might be the time when you turn to professionals. So you say turn to professionals. So are there any official programmes that exist to help people with compassion fatigue? Not therapeutic parents, only within the Centre of Excellence in Child Trauma. I haven't found, I never found anything um, for myself, despite looking quite hard. And the main thing that people do, uh, most adopters and foster parents will have be connected to a social worker, for example, foster parents, definitely. So what happens is the pattern is, is that the parent's struggling, the parent feels very alone, the behaviours might worsen, they begin to feel more desperate. And at that point, they might contact the social worker and say, I'm not I'm, I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. Now, the problem is, is that many social workers don't have the experience or training to recognise compassion fatigue and to deal with that. So a lot of our work is about training social workers and uh, other supporting professionals to do empathic listening to help resolve compassion fatigue and help the parent to reconnect to the child. Because the overwhelming experience of therapeutic parents and a survey that we did last year showed that this was the case in over 90% of respondents was that when they were in compassion fatigue, when they were feeling isolated and they reached out for that help, they felt that the person they reached out to, be it the school, the social worker, didn't get it. And not only did they not get it, but they made them feel worse and more alone. So this is pretty disturbing then, isn't it? Because it means that these poor isolated individuals who are trying to bring up children from damaged backgrounds are, are simply aren't getting the support they need, which, which reflects in lots of different ways, but also on the children themselves. That's right. And although we know that many social workers, once they're qualified, they do go on to do additional training and, um, you know, learn about compassion fatigue and trauma. It's just often not there at the beginning. So we've got this real, really difficult situation where at the very moment when you feel the most isolated, the most scared and the most worried and disconnected, that's the time you leave it to, to reach out for that help. And of course, the problem is, is that many supporting professionals don't recognise compassion fatigue. And the reaction that sometimes we get is one where the social worker or the therapist or the whoever it is, say the school, uh, their instinctive reaction is to look at this and say, oh, this is all very difficult. Um, and they take a step back or they engage in blaming or judging. So, for example, you might have a situation where, um, think of something that's happened recently, where the uh, foster parent had to take the child to contact with a birth parent and the, the contact was very disturbing and um, there was a lot of difficulties for the child. And this resulted in the child becoming violent to the foster parent. So as he became more and more violent and the foster parent went into compassion fatigue, she reached out and said, I'm to the social worker and said, I'm really struggling. He's really violent. I'm, I'm really feeling disconnected from him. The response to the social worker was to say, you need to basically sort it out. You committed to him. You need to get on with it. 
Um, and then, of course, there was a lot of blame going around. Nobody looked at the, what the trigger was for this behaviour. Um, and the, the knee-jerk response was, let's move the child. I mean, luckily, our team became involved quite quickly and we stopped that from happening and helped the uh, foster parent to exit compassion fatigue and to reconnect. But that's a very typical response where it's all looked at on the surface and it's not looked at about why things have happened and how we can help foster parent or adopter to reconnect to the child to stop the child moving obviously. So can you talk us through then the steps that COECT would have taken in such a situation? Yes so the first thing we do is we look at what the triggers might be so we would be contacted in that situation by the foster parent they might contact us and say help um, you know they're looking at removing the child and I don't even know if I want them anymore because it's so difficult negative so one of our empathic listeners would uh, spend quite some time maybe one to two hours literally just actively listening to the foster parent because we know that as that person speaks about what has happened it clears their brain especially when they're speaking to somebody who truly understands those behaviors and what's been going on so as that clears the foster parent was then able to say, oh, I see what's happened here. What might have happened is when we went to contact, this happened. That then enabled our team to write a letter to the social worker and say, we've identified the trigger. This is what we think happened. The child hadn't seen mum for over a year. Contact was very negative. Um, what we need to do now is we need to look at helping the foster parent to deal with the violence. We have a course for that. We have a course called Managing Violent Behaviour social services would need to fund that um, they can do it so that's what we did and so because the foster parent was able to start managing the violence and because they had regular empathic listening and they joined uh, one of our listening circles with NATP um, the child's still there I mean so that was over a year ago and everything's much more positive. So you talked about social services funding your courses or they might Um, Mm. uh, is this increasingly the case? Yes, um, we, especially with the adopters, adopters get access to the adoption support fund and that pays in some of the courses. But what we've tried to do is make them as uh, affordable as possible. So now we've got a training pass, which people can access absolutely everything for $9.99 a month. So we're, we're really happy with that because it, it covers our costs, obviously the website and the person that, that sorts it all out. But it means that somebody who's in compassion fatigue can literally um, go online, they get a seven day free trial and then go straight into the compassion fatigue courses. They can link up to the stuff around managing violence and they can get the help that they need straight away. So we're really pleased the way that that's going. And a lot of, um, you know, social services departments, local authorities, they're very happy to pay for their foster parents to engage in that type of experience. So. Before we end this then, Sarah, what would you advise parents do in the very first instance if they are desperately struggling with this isolation problem? Where, what is the first thing they should do? The first thing you need to do is you, na- you need to take a good long look at who you're speaking to and what your expectations are of them. So, for example... If you are speaking to your extended family, your mum, your dad, your brother, sisters, and they're not getting it and they're engaging in some blame and judgment and you should have done this, you should have done that, stop asking for their help. You can ask for their help in practical ways, 
But if that emotional support and that emotional connection isn't there about your children, you need to look elsewhere for it. Now, where you're going to find that is a parent like you. You may well know other parents, other foster parents, other adopters, other parents of special needs children, and those are the people to connect to. If you don't know anybody, then you need to contact NATP through us and we will put you in touch with your local listening circle. And we have listening circles all over the world, but we have uh, over 150 now in the UK. So there will be somewhere near you. You can go along to the listening circle and what that is a safe place, free of blame and judgment, full of people who understand what you're going through because they live it themselves. They've often been in compassion fatigue themselves. There's always nice cake, a coffee, glass of wine if it's the evening. Um, and it's just a place where people are joined together by the uh, stresses in their lives, really. And what we have found is that this is the best way to help parents to stop feeling isolated. And what they do, actually, which is lovely, they join up outside of the listening circles. They have days out with their children. And of course, you know, the children act out and everyone helps because they all get it. They're all on the same page. And it's really lovely to see. Uh, Sarah, this has been a really constructive chat, I think, about tackling isolation and, and finding a solution. So thank you for your help today. To find out more and to access this help that we've just been talking about, please visit our website, coect.co.uk. And if you'd like to receive this podcast every week, just press the follow button. You'll find it where you found this podcast. And we'd love you to leave a review for the podcast. It'll help other people find us and all our helpful advice. Bye for now. <laughs>